Have you ever tried to tell somebody about Jesus and <clears throat> they respond with, well, you know, I just, I just try to keep the Ten Commandments and uh, I think if I keep the Ten Commandments, I'll get into heaven okay. And if you ask that person, well, hey, tell me what they are. Uh, well, um, you're not supposed to kill. Everybody knows that one. Not supposed to kill. And usually they can get about three, maybe four. And yet here's a person who just told you that they're counting on the Ten Commandments to get them into heaven. Let me tell you something. If I was counting on keeping the Ten Commandments to get me into heaven, I would read them every single day of my life. If I was counting on the Ten Commandments to get me into heaven, I'd memorize them word for word. No, if I was counting on the Ten Commandments to get me into heaven, I'd have them tattooed on my arms. So I'd make sure to know exactly what they are. And every decision I'd make, I'd go, okay, let's see, where's that fit in? Uh, you know, like a, like a quarterback with that thing on his sleeve. Okay. Uh, because, man, if I'm counting on that to get me into heaven, I want to get it right. And here's the here's sad thing. Most Christians couldn't list for you the Ten Commandments. This morning, I want to talk about the most overlooked, what I think is the most overlooked commandment. See, every Christian ought to be concerned with living by the Ten Commandments. Not out of fear. Now listen carefully to what I'm going to say. This may be more important than the point. I'm not centered here. There we go. This may be more important than the main point. Not out of fear. You don't keep the Ten Commandments out of fear. And I don't even want to say keep the Ten Commandments. I want to say live by the Ten Commandments. You don't keep them out of a concern like God is saying, you do this or I'll hurt you. I'm afraid that's the way we look at God's laws sometimes. It's not that. 2 Timothy 1.7, one of the great promises, you should write that reference down and look it up later. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And here's what's ironic. The, the people that a lot of times say, where does the Bible say you got to do this? Where does the Bible say you can't do this? Are the same folks that will say to me, see, I'm just, I'm just not all militant like you are. Well, I don't live by where does the Bible say you can't do this and you have to do that. I strive to live by this rule. What, what would please God? What, how, how could I live in such a way that God would say, no, I like that. that. See, that's the way I, and that's what I want to be driven by. And by the way, that's why first, I'm sorry, Second Timothy 1.7 says, God hasn't given us, the believer, the spirit of fear. If you're living by, I got to do this or God's going to hurt me. If you're living by that, that's a spirit of fear. You're saved. You're never going to go to hell once your faith is in Jesus Christ. That's not going to happen. The Bible's very clear about that. So you don't have to live, i got to do this or God's going to hurt me. Because that's not how it works. God has given us the spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind. Still, 2 Timothy 1.7. So I'm supposed to approach life not out of, I'm scared, I'm scared, i got to get it right or God's going to get me. God's not going to get you. He's your father. He loves you. I'm instead going to live out of, I want to be victorious. So what are the principles of victory? I love God, so what pleases him? 
See, one of the purest indications that you truly love somebody is that you have a sincere desire to do what that person enjoys. If you love the Lord, you want to do what he likes. If you're in love with your spouse, you're going to find out as quick as you can how they like their coffee. Or if they don't like coffee, if they like something better than coffee. My wife, though, if, if she happens to get home before I do on any given day, I walk in the door, and her first question is, or her first statement is, let me get you a drink. And it's not, you know, something we hide in the cabinet. It's the, it's the Diet Coke in the, in the refrigerator. And, and she knows that. She doesn't, ask, she doesn't have to ask me, what do you want to drink? She knows what it is. And because uh, she knows and she, she wants now, if she had her way, and if many of you had your way, it wouldn't be Diet Coke. We've had this discussion, and so uh, she knows I like Diet Coke, so she serves it to me unless I get on a water binge. I'm on a semi-water binge right now, uh, but Diet Coke's going to win out. It always does. But uh, she, she gives that to me because, because she, she, knows, she knows what I like. If you're going to go out to eat, you've been married a while, you have hopefully figured out what her favorite restaurant is or what some of her favorite or what kind of her favorite kind of food is. And so when it's time to go out to eat, you're going to take her to her favorite restaurant or one of her favorite restaurants, one of her favorite things to do. What does she like to do? Where does she like to go? Why? Because you want to please her. Not because you have to. You have a lousy marriage. And I mean, I'm not condemning you. I'm, I'm saying you're, you have a rough life. You've got a rough life if you're going, all right, now we got to go to... Olive Garden, because that's what she likes. And now, now we got to eat this because that's what he likes. You, you got a tough marriage. But if you're, man, if if she's constantly trying to find what pleases him, and he's constantly trying to find what pleases her, you have a very happy existence. That's a great way to live. Now, do you get that when you're living in covenant with God? That is what the Ten Commandments are about. Now, before you were saved, the Ten Commandments were were condemning you. They were sending you to eternal damnation. But now you're saved, and the Ten Commandments can never condemn you now. Now they do something very special. They give you an opportunity to express your love for God. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That was not Jesus saying... If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. No, read the tone of the whole chapter. It was more like this, and, and I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit to help you get the picture. You guys love me? How many guys love me? Every hand of the disciples went up. All right, then. I wasn't asking you, but I'm a little disappointed that only one hand went up. But anyway, <laughs> he's saying, how many guys? And it wasn't yours, but anyway. <laughs> Because she knows me, she knows I wasn't asking that crap. He said, you guys love me? How many guys love me? And all, all 11 hands go up. Judas has already left, and he says, uh, then all you got to do is what, you, what, you, what I've already instructed you to do, my commandments. Keep those commandments. And here we have 
the Ten Commandments. Now, let me throw in a little something about the Ten Commandments that the average person doesn't, doesn't grasp, all right? I don't have any insight for information. It's just it's right there in the Bible. The Ten Commandments were a covenant between God and Israel. Now, they are the model of all law of all time, no doubt, but they were a... Read it for yourself. Read Exodus 18, 19, 20, 21. Read all through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It is a covenant between God and Israel. And you have to read it in that light. For example, why do we have church on Sunday and not on Saturday? Because we just read, Pastor, it says, on the seventh day, okay? That was a covenant of Israel based on creation. The church is an institution based on the new creation. And the day of rest of the new creation is the day that Jesus rose from the dead because that's when things started over with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's that simple. We are guided for sure by the Ten Commandments, but we are not under the Ten Commandment covenant that Israel was under. And so it is not a strict, it, it's not anymore about the seven days of creation. It's now about the new creation. If any man be in Christ, he is a new, cre- uh, new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And so now we meet on the day that is tied to his resurrection. That's not a huge deal. But it's easy to get bogged down in those kind of questions if you're not careful, if you don't understand that the Ten Commandments were a covenant, strictly a covenant. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be guided by, oh, you mean I can go out and kill somebody? Because No, uh uh-uh. They are the core of all law of all time. So understand it and read it in in that context. What I want to talk to you about for just a few minutes is what I think is the most overlooked of the Ten Commandments. Now, if you've heard me say before, you may think I'm talking about the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet. No, I think thou shalt not covet is the most ignored of the Ten Commandments. What's the difference between overlooked and ignored? Let me see if I can illustrate it for you. You're a, you're a football team, all right? And uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're a fan of an NFL team, you've had your team do this, or even a college team, any sport can do this. But especially of a team that has a shorter season, you know, baseball, they play, they pay, play way more games, but a football is just, a, just 16 games every season. And so it's very easy that when you have, let's say in week six, you're playing an undefeated team. In week five, you're playing a team that hasn't won a game yet. So it's very easy. You don't ignore the team in week five, but it's very easy to overlook the team. And if you're a football fan, you've had your team do that, where they're so, they're so excited about week seven that they miss week six, and all of a sudden that team that hadn't won a game yet, they win their first game because you overlooked them. That's overlooked. Ignore implies intention. Ignore is actually a little bit stronger offense. The result is the same when you ignore something or when you overlook it, but the intention with ignore is a little bit stronger. I believe thou shalt not covet is ignored because we don't want it. We want to live a covetous. Covetousness is tied to greed. It's tied to materialism. It's tied to lust. And, and, and hey, that's, that's the American lifestyle. So we, we, we like to ignore the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. But I think the most overlooked, the one that we take for granted, the one that we say, yeah, I got that. Let's go to the next one 
is the very first one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, let's back up here. I want us to take this in the, in the frame of mind of we love the Lord and we want him to be pleased with our lifestyle. I want to please him. I love my wife. I want her to be pleased. I love you in a, in a different context, of course, but, but I love you and I want you to be pleased. And if I can possibly do that, I will. I love the Lord. I want him to be pleased with my lifestyle. Lord, how can I please you? And God says, well, I have, you can start with, with some basic commandments. Say, Pastor, that sounds a little bit too Old Testament. All right, then sometime turn in the book of 1 John, not right now. And I believe it's about chapter 3 and maybe verse 22, right, at, right around there, that the Bible says that we get our prayers answered if we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And if you don't know, 1 John is in the New Testament. So that's not an Old Testament concept. Just because it's in the book of Exodus, if you want to please the Lord, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, and Jesus is God. So a very good place to start is to understand the principles of the Ten Commandments. But we're just going to look at this first one. I love God, and I want to please him. So let's, let's look at what he says. I think if we're going to understand the first commandment, we've got to begin with that preliminary statement. And to be honest, I'm not convinced that the very first statement is not uniquely attached to the very first commandment. And here's that first statement. I'm the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I want you to notice first here God's full redemption. Christian, don't miss this. God's full redemption. I'm the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And here's what God's telling them there. You wouldn't have all that you have if you didn't have me. Here's the people of Israel living in freedom. They weren't living in luxury. They weren't living yet in a self-sustaining society where they could build farms and and build businesses. That's all coming in the land of milk and honey. That, That means the land of opportunity. But here they are at the foot of Mount Sinai. They're in a wilderness. They're living out of tents. They're in a training stage. They're in a preparation stage, a transition stage. And so even though it's not a life of ease... It's also not a life of bondage and slavery. And God's reminding them, whoa, time out. Before I tell you my first commandment, I want you to remember that if it weren't for me, you'd be making bricks today. You'd be building pyramids today. And no matter how hard you worked all day, you'd get a whipping for it at the end of the day. And you'd be living inside of your little hut with your family, complaining about me, saying, I thought God was going to send a deliverer. Don't forget that if it weren't for me, you wouldn't be where you are. So as you're looking at God's commandments, and I'm trying to help you pass this thing of, you better do this or I'm going to get you. No, that's not God. 
God has delivered you. God has fully redeemed you. And the life that you enjoy as a believer, it's not easy. It's not total comfort. But it's not bondage. You've been delivered. You've been set free. You have forgiveness and everlasting life. And it's all because of God. Our human minds, one of our great weaknesses, is number one, to lose sight of how good we have it. And number two, to lose sight of the fact that we wouldn't have it so good if it weren't for God. It would not be overdoing it to remember every single day how good God has made it for you. Now, if your household right now, and I'm, I, I, if your household right now is, is a household of screaming and slamming doors and, and, you know, flying pans, I'm not trying to be funny. There's, there's people that that's, that's, your, that's your home life. If that's your home life, I'm sorry. But there's other people in this room that that was your home life, and it's not today. Your home life now is peace. It's love. It's, oh, it's not perfect. Nobody's house is perfect. Or maybe your home life as a child was, was all of that bad stuff, and now as an adult, it's a, it's a life of peace. And it's by the grace of God that things are changed. You could apply that to any area of your life. Many of you, your background is a background of addiction. But your life now is a life of victory. Many of you, your background is a background of turmoil, discouragement, even depression, strife. And now your life is a life of peace. And it was God that set you free. It would not be out of line for you to revisit that every single day. I was going through McDonald's this morning. We have a Sunday morning ritual. I go to Dunkin' and I get uh, our, we got I get coffees for both of us. I'm not a big coffee drinker, but I could I, I I'm okay with it. So I get us some coffees. I get Amy uh, a muffin, and I was getting for myself a uh, Dunkin' had this Amy how many of you had this this sweet black pepper bacon sandwich that they were doing for oh my soul. But then they do the same thing that they did with the McRib. And if you don't, that McDonald's did with the McRib. If you don't like the McRib, I'm sorry, but I love it. They run it for three weeks, and then they end it. I'm like, what are you doing? And don't, don't play with us like that. That's not right. So when, when Duncan stopped with their sweet pepper bacon, whatever it was, sandwich, I said, all right, I'm not getting my breakfast sandwich from there on Sunday morning. So I... I get the first part of the order from, from Duncan, and I go to McDonald's. How many of you are glad that I just filled you in on all that information? Aren't you glad? So I went to the McDonald's right down the road here, on the way here, and I'm no stranger to that McDonald's. And so I recognize the people. They recognize me, and it's a general, how's it going? Good to see you. God bless you. I pull up to the window this morning. I got, Brother Joe! And it, it woke me up. I was in my McDonald's drive through stupor, you know. And I looked, and uh, this is a lady that, that had, she's never been to church here. She used to come pretty faithfully in, in the VFW at Brewster. Hey, I've, it's been way over 10 years. 
And so uh, we, we got talking and so forth, and she's telling me how good her life is now and how her, her daughter is, is great. Her daughter is in some of those videos that we show from, from back in the day. And uh, she's grown now. She's married. She's living in Danbury, and she's just talking about, and, and boy, God really has turned things around. God really has changed things. Oh, praise the Lord. That's wonderful. I'm glad she hasn't forgotten that. Don't you ever forget that. Don't you ever forget what God has done for you. I, I don't want to take the time. It's not a super long story, but I think it's good. It always reminds me of the king that had no children, and he wanted so badly to have children. And so he was out in his palace, in his kingdom one day, left the palace and went out in the kingdom, and he saw a, a young peasant boy, and he he. Actually, the boy, if I'm not mistaken, the story goes, uh, stole a piece of fruit from, from the little market there, and, and he was caught. And the king went up and said, son, why do you do this? He said, where are your parents? And the boy said, I have no parents. And the king said, okay. And he told the people there, give him his fruit, I'll pay for it, set him free. And he let the kid go. And he went home, and he realized him having no children, and he thought about it, and he he said, uh, you know what? I'm going to adopt that boy and raise him as my own. And he sent some men out to say, oh, you were with me that day. You saw the boy. Go find that boy. Bring him to the palace. I want to adopt him. He was probably 11, 12 years old. And so the servants went out and found the boy. And they, said the, they said, the king would like to ask your permission for you to move to the palace and for him to adopt you. Your life is about to be changed if you want it to be. And he said, what's the catch? He said, there is no catch. It's exactly as I've said. And he said, I'd be a fool to pass that up. And they said, well, they took him to the palace and he adjusted quickly. He had a great attitude and fit right in and everybody loved him. Well, of course, one thing he wasn't used to is they wait on him hand and foot. He can't make a move where they're not trying to make everything perfect for him. And every morning, a, an assigned butler would come and knock at his door. And the butler was there not only to wake him up, but to dress him and escort him down to the breakfast table. And every morning, when he knocked on the door, the young boy would say, just a moment. And it would take about 15 minutes before he would let the butler in. And it was very curious that he'd made him wait so long. So after this happened a number of times, the butler mentioned to the king, your highness, there's something that you need to be aware of. Your new son, every morning when I knock on his door, he, he doesn't let me in for about 15 minutes. And he said, uh, I, I, I thought you'd want to know about that. He said, he's done it every day for all this time. And the king said, tomorrow morning when you go, come get me. And he said, I want to go with you. And so the next morning it was time for the boy to get up, and the king, I'm sorry, the, the butler knocked at the door. And the boy said, just a minute. And the king opened the door just a crack. And he watched the boy get out of bed. 
go over to the closet. And from way back in the closet, he pulled out the rags that he wore when he was on the street. And he put on those rags. And he just sat there on the floor and stared out the window. And then he took the rags off and he put his night clothes back on. And he sat on the edge of the bed and said to the butler, come in. Well, the king walked away. He didn't let his son know what he had done. But when his son came to the table, he said, son, I have to confess, when the butler knocked at your door this morning, I was with him and I opened the door and I watched what you did. I'm sorry for invading your privacy, but I just had to know. He said, may I ask you, do you do that every day? And the boy said, I've done it every day since I've been here. Can I ask you why? He said, absolutely. He said, as long as I, he said, my life has been totally transformed. He said, dad, you don't know the cold nights. You don't know the hungry days. He said, I don't ever want to forget how it used to be. He said, so I start every day by taking just a few minutes to relive it. I don't think it's out of line for a Christian to remember every single day because it should never get old to us. There's some things that we need to move on, get past, get over, but this is not one of them. It would not be out of line every day. to Hey, don't wallow in it. Don't obsess in it. It's not your identity anymore. But at the same time, don't forget it. Don't forget what God brought you from. And to use the illustration, go ahead and get dressed and go to the table. But take a moment to remember. So God starts out by reminding him of his full redemption. And then he moves on to this. And I I just want to take a moment here. But God gives him a frank reminder. Don't, Don't overlook this. I want you to notice the phrase, no other gods. Now, in your Bible, no other gods, is that a capital G or a small g? Small g, okay. There's a number of times in the Bible where you'll read this phrase, where God is rebuking the people saying, you're serving gods which are no gods. Now, if they're not gods, why does God call them gods? And the answer is simple. Because the people called them gods. So here's what I'm pointing out to you. God is called whatever, a a stick, the sun, a blade of grass, whatever somebody calls a god, that's not a god. But God's saying this, false gods are only gods because you make them gods. So I'm going to go ahead and use your lingo, but they're not gods. So God gives them a frank reminder that you are not to have gods. But but before that, I'm sorry, I get ahead of myself. He gives them a frank reminder that false gods are only gods because you call them gods. They are not gods. 
We need to be very careful of what we elevate to the level of God. What makes a God? What makes God God? Number one, first and foremost, his authority. (laughs) He will win, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, he will win. Because God holds all of the authority, and the sooner you are okay with that, the better it's going to go for you. God holds all the authority. Even Satan, stupid, has not figured it out yet. God holds all the authority. He's going to win. But there's something else that goes with God, and that not only his authority, but the affection that we have for him. And so if we give the authority of God to, okay, I've decided this is the eyeglasses God. Oh, great eyeglasses God. You control my life. That's ridiculous, Pastor. It is. So why do we do it? Why do we do it with so many things? There are so many things. I remember the story. I'll keep it brief here. I always say that, but I'm going to try. Of a preacher that I heard preach probably 30 years ago. And before he got saved, he had been in the Hell's Angels. And he was into it. And it wound up, I mean, it destroyed his family. It made him miserable. It, he had all kinds of addictions. He just, his life, he was, he was virtually homeless, but boy, did he have a bad bike. And you went into his, his little place that he was hiding out in, basically, and there were motorcycle parts all over the place. And so his mother's a Christian, and she's praying for him. She's praying for him to get saved, but she's inviting him all the while to come to church. And his answer always is, oh, I can't can't come to church because Sunday's when I work on my bike because his bike was his God. And, well, his brother had already gotten saved, so she called him and she said, could you talk to your brother, see if you can get him to come to church with me? And so his brother goes to see his brother, and he says to him, hey, man, I hear you're worshiping idols. And his biker brother said, what? He said, mom says you won't go to church because Sunday's when you work on your bike. Yeah. So you're putting that before God. That's your idol. And he said that was one of the first steps towards him going to church and getting him saved. And as I said, now he, he, he's passed away now, but he became a pastor, powerful preacher, from being hell's angels to being a pastor. And one of the first things that got his attention when he was realized, yeah. You know, we, we, can, we can argue it all we want to as, as Christians who suddenly know better, but the whole world, especially the American world, associates Sunday with church and church with God. And if we have any brains in our head, we're going to roll with that, that the, the world associates, you know, it's only these enlightened Johnny-come-lately Christian experts that, well, you know, we don't have to meet on a Sunday. We could meet on a Monday night in my apartment. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, that, that's fine. But the whole world associates Sunday with church and church with God. Let's, let's go with that because it's probably got the best chance of getting people to God. And this man associated Sunday with church and church with God. And that's when he began to realize, yeah, I got an idol. I wonder how many Christians don't realize that they got an idol. What is it that you keep putting before God? Let me tell you why 
you're sitting here and I'm your pastor. I'm not saying you wouldn't be saved if it weren't for me. I'm saying this is why we're here together and, and, and I'm up front. This is why we got to this destination. Because when I was a boy, nothing came in front of church. There were so many times where we said, oh, I can't do that. I have church on Wednesday night. School things. I was in the Cub Scouts. <laughs> I was in a soccer team for one year because they figured out all the, the closest thing I could do to contribute was stand in front of the goal and maybe the ball will hit him. I'm not an athlete. But everything we did, the soccer game, oh, I can only get there if, I can, if it's after church. My parents put church first, Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And I praise the Lord they did. I'm saying if it wasn't for that, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be, be, be here because I would have found something else to do along the way. What is it that you're putting before God? God gives them a frank reminder, and then God gives them the first rule. Here's the first rule. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, I wish we had time to go down the road of what is that before me means it's all okay in in the garden of eden when the bible says that he cast them out of the garden from before his presence same word here so we're not talking about putting something first and god second so if you take that same thing and put god first and put that thing second then it's okay no he's talking about in my presence and it's in the bible I'm not kidding you, hundreds of times. Before me means get it out of my face. Get it away from me. Okay? In Genesis 17, 1, God told Abraham to walk before me. Now, if Abraham is walking before God, then anything that Abraham has that conflicts with God, God, Abraham can't hold on to. Do you get that? Because whatever Abraham is he's holding on to the eyeglass God, boy, that was a dumb illustration that just came out of nowhere. If he's holding on to the eyeglass God and he's walking before God, guess what? The eyeglass God is before God. So if you're going to walk before God, you've got to get everything out of your life that competes with God. And that was rule number one. First commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. If you're going to live in covenant with me, you got to get everything out of your life that competes with me. So let's wrap it all up. Do you love God? Yes, I do. How can I show it? Where do I start? Well, if you love me, keep my commandments, God says. All right, good. So because I love God, it's not about what I have to do, what I can't do. God's going to that's all behind me now. I'm saved. That's gone. Now it's about I love him. Where do I start? Well, I got some commandments. You can, you can figure those out and live your life accordingly. Okay. What's commandment number one? Don't have any other gods before me. Let me summarize, folks. Christians have way too much in our lives that compete with God. We're so busy looking at, where's the Bible say I can't do that? Where's the Bible say I have to do that? We're so busy looking at that that we don't even realize we got a mind full of things that's competing with God. Our hearts are filled with things that compete with God. Our schedule, our time, our finances, our priorities are filled with things that compete with God. And that is a much higher standard, a much higher standard 
then where does the Bible say I have to do this? Much higher standard. But it's a standard that if you'll strive for it, you're going to please God sometimes. If you'll strive for the standard of, am I, are things coming into my life that are competing with God? They're, they're, I'm putting things that, maybe not, maybe not sinful things, but the only reason they are sinful is because they are more important to God than, I'm sorry, more important to me than God is. They're more important to me than God is. And God says, well, if you want to please me, if you love me, you want to please me, you're going to have to deal with that. If you don't deal with it, you're still my child. I still love you. But if you want to be closer to me, if you want to please me, and if you want the blessings that come with pleasing me, don't forget, I, I told you, First John says that we get our prayers answered because we please him. There's a level of answered prayer that we'll never have until we really have the desire in our heart to please him. We're not slaves. We're we're. We're children that say, you know what, I want to I want to please God. Did you come to that place in your own life if you if you grew up in a solid home where you used to do stuff because I, I remember a preacher saying this, and so I'll go with that preacher and see if you can identify. He said, When I was a, a, a child, I was scared of my father because he had a big belt. As I became a teenager, I didn't get the belt anymore because something changed. I loved my father. And I didn't want him to be disappointed. I wanted him to be pleased by what I did. And he said, once I got focused on God being pleased, the belt wasn't a factor anymore. I wish we could live our lives understanding God loves you. He's your father. You're his child. He's not looking to get you. But if you have a love relationship with him, you want to do what pleases him. And the first one on the list, get the stuff out of your life that competes with me.